Welcome to the Couch to Ballet podcast, episode 10. After Marius Petipa's retirement from the Imperial Ballet Theater in the early 20th century, a new generation of Russian dancers and choreographers sprang forth eager to break with tradition from the government-run theater's strict regime. Prompted by the social and political unrest of the Russian Revolution of 1905, Visionary producer and impresario Sergei Diaghilev assembled a collective of painters, musicians, and dancers that together would form the Ballet Russe. Today we're going to discuss Diaghilev's background, the active years of the Ballet Russe between 1909 and 1929, and Diaghilev's lasting impact on the ballet world. Sergei Diaghilev was born into a wealthy family in Novgorod, Russia in 1872. His mother died shortly after his birth, and his stepmother Yelena would come to be the greatest influence during the early years of his life. Yelena came from a distinguished and musically accomplished family, and she and Diaghilev's father raised young Sergei in a happy home surrounded by cultured family and friends in the city of Perm. Young Sergei often fell behind in his schoolwork because his real interests were in music, paintings, and books that waited for him at home. In 1890, Diaghilev traveled to St. Petersburg to study law. Once he had arrived, his cousin Dima introduced him to a group of artists and liberals, including Alexandra Benoit, Leon Basques, and Walter Nouvelle. At first, the group was tentative to accept Diaghilev, thinking that he was just a rich kid and not a true intellectual. However, after it became apparent that Sergei was very intelligent, knowledgeable, and a great appreciator of art, he was accepted into this new social circle. Diaghilev and members of this social group would go on to publish the magazine Mir Ishkushva, translating to World of Art. The magazine aimed to liberate art and groom its readers' artistic tastes. The popularity of the magazine would help establish Diaghilev's reputation as an art connoisseur. While the Mir Ishkushva group was very interested in all forms of art, during this period in his life, Diaghilev was so wrapped up in his love for music and painting that he had little time for ballet. In fact, he even took private music lessons with the great Russian composer Rimsky-Korsakov, who told him to stick to his legal studies and discouraged him from pursuing a career in music. While Diaghilev lacked artistic talent, he made up for it in social connections, charisma, and vision. He described himself like this. First of all, I am a great charlatan. Second, I'm a great charmer. Third, I've great nerve. Fourth, I'm a man with a great deal of logic and few principles. And fifth, I think I lack talent, but I think I've found my real calling, patronage of the arts. In the summer of 1905, Diaghilev charmed his way into curating an exhibition of nearly 4,000 historical Russian portraits in St. Petersburg. Wild success followed, and encouraged by this, he set his eyes upon mounting a follow-up exhibition of Russian art in Paris. This became a series that was added to over time. In 1907, the season included Russian music concerts, 
and in 1908, Russian opera was added to the mix. Finally, in 1909, Diaghilev brought Russian ballet to Paris. For the first Ballet Russe season in 1909, Diaghilev assembled an unparalleled team of artists. It featured sets and costumes by Diaghilev's old friends, Leon Basques and Alexandre Benoit, and illustrator and stage designer Ivan Bilibin, who were all members of Mir Ishkushva, as well as sets by painter Nikolai Rorik, and borrowed sets by the Russian Impressionist painter Konstantin Korovin. Mikhail Fokin, who had previously created The Dying Swan for his school friend Anna Pavlova, was tapped to provide the majority of the choreography. His new ballet, which premiered for the company debut, was significant. At first glance, the woodland setting and an entire corps de ballet of female dancers and three female soloists, costumed as taglioni-like sylphs, the one-act Les Sylphides may appear to share many similarities with a Romantic-era ballet. However, the similarities end with aesthetics. What sets Les Sylphides apart is that it has no plot, with choreography meant to invoke a mood rather than a story. According to Fokin, the singular male role, danced by Václav Nijinsky, was not a character, but, quote, the personification of a poetic vision, unquote. The first plotless ballet, Les Sylphides, is considered the earliest example of an abstract ballet, and it's still popular today. Fokin's choreography, danced by Nijinsky, Tamara Karsavina, and Anna Pavlova, had sealed the success of the 1909 season and secured a future for the Ballet Russe company. Next, Diaghilev commissioned an unknown 27-year-old composer, Igor Stravinsky, to create the score for the Ballet Russe's follow-up critical success, The Firebird. Based on a Russian folktale, the creation of The Firebird marked the first original ballet score commissioned by Diaghilev as Stravinsky's first collaboration with a ballet company. He would continue to collaborate with the company over the next two decades and would go on to become one of the most important and influential composers of the 20th century. This is truly when Diaghilev's vision for the work of the company came into focus. Diaghilev and his colleagues were hugely influenced by the Wagnerian concept of Gesamtkunstwerk, which translates to total work of art. The Ballet Russe formula would be this, combine cutting edge choreographers, visual artists, composers, and writers to create total interdisciplinary modern works of art. Lastly, it was a triumph for Serge Lifar, who danced the role of Apollo. He would later direct the Paris Opera Ballet. Over the next few seasons, Diaghilev would tour the company widely throughout Europe, the United States, and South America, with Fokin's choreography dominating the repertory. In addition to the Firebird, important Fokin works include Le Spectre de la Rose, a duet made to showcase the talent of Karsavina and Nijinsky. Legend has it that Nijinsky wowed audiences with his exit leap through an impossibly high window built into the set. Also of import is Petrushka, 
with a score by Stravinsky, the ballet is set in a Russian fairground and tells the tale of the charlatan and the three puppets that he brings to life, the ballerina, Petrushka, and the Moor. In the original production, the charlatan was portrayed by Enrico Cecchetti, who by this time had become a ballet master and character artist for the company, the Moor by Alexander Orlov, the ballerina by Tamara Karsavina, and Petrushka by Václav Nijinsky. Petrushka became an iconic role for Nijinsky, showcasing his skills as both a dancer and an actor. Diaghilev took both a romantic and professional interest in Nijinsky and promoted his career as a dancer and choreographer, a practice that would repeat itself with other male dancers and choreographers in the years to follow. Fokin grew exceedingly jealous as Diaghilev encouraged Nijinsky to experiment with choreography, and he eventually left the company at the end of the 1912 season. Fokin's body of work with the Ballet Russe built a bridge between the old imperial traditions and the more modernist works that were yet to come, and many of the ballets that I mentioned are still performed today. After Fokin's departure, Nijinsky would choreograph his first ballet, La Pre Midi d'un Fon, or Afternoon of a Fon, based on a poem by Stéphane Mellarm, which portrays a Fon's encounter with a group of nymphs. Nijinsky's ballet evoked ancient Greek vase paintings, with the dancers moving in a flattened, two dimensional manner across the stage. The movements were turned in, low to the ground, angular a complete departure from anything that ballet technique had produced thus far. The ballet ended with the erotic image of Nijinsky dancing as the fawn, lowering himself onto a scarf left behind by one of the nymphs. The combination of Nijinsky's jarring choreographic style and the sexual overtones of the ending inspired mixed reactions from audience members. Dancer Sergei Grigoriev recalled, Our other first nights had been rather dull, but on this occasion, the audience was electrified from the start. The ballet was watched with intense interest, and at the end, one half of the spectators broke out into frantic applause, and the other into equally frantic protests. By 1913, the ballet ruse were a driving force, elevating the art of ballet around the globe and continuing to churn out experimental and boundary-pushing ballets. For Nijinsky's third ballet, Rite of Spring, Diaghilev teamed him up with Stravinsky, Marie Rambert, who was trained in Dalcois Eurythmics to help Nijinsky to physically interpret Stravinsky's complicated score, and Nicholas Rorick, an expert on prehistoric Russia, who designed the set and costumes to be as historically accurate as possible. Rorick's costumes ended up inspiring Nijinsky's hunched-over, pigeon-toed, pre-human choreography. When all of these elements came together on May 29, 1913, the effect was shocking and a riot broke out amongst the audience members. Again, Grigoriev recalls the following night now known as the Riot at the Right. The audience began shouting in indignation, on which the rest retaliated with loud appeals for order. 
The hubbub soon became deafening, but the dancers went on, and so did the orchestra, though scarcely a note of the music could be heard. Then actual fighting broke out among the spectators. Nijinsky's choreography was performed only eight times before being dropped, so his original work is lost in time. However, Stravinsky's score survived, and the Rite of Spring retains such a mythology around it that it's become a rite of passage for many choreographers, making it the most reimagined ballet of the 20th century, and arguably in ballet history. Nijinsky, with his incredible leap, was the most celebrated male dancer of his time, and his choreography altered ballet entirely, driving it into modern times. The press referred to him as the eighth wonder of the world, but his meteoric career would meet a tragic ending. Shortly after the premiere of Rite of Spring, Nijinsky met and married a Hungarian socialite, Romola Dipolsky. Furious and brokenhearted, Diaghilev dismissed him from the ballet ruse. At the outbreak of World War I, Nijinsky was placed under house arrest in Hungary until his release was brokered in 1916 by Diaghilev with the assistance of the King of Spain, on the condition that he would join the Ballet Russe's North American tour. A changed Nijinsky arrived in New York. He was hostile and suspicious of everyone around him, and by 1917, his increasingly deteriorating mental health forced him into early retirement. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia and spent the remaining 30 years of his life in psychiatric hospitals in Switzerland, France, and the UK, finally passing away in London in 1950. Diaghilev, having alienated Fokine and lost Nijinsky, continued to plan new productions. Fokine was coaxed back for a time, but the next chapter of the Ballet Russe would be belonged to another of Diaghilev's discoveries, Leonid Massine. Massine adopted many of Nijinsky's former roles and became the company's new leading male star. He would also become a prolific creative force as a choreographer, creating over 100 ballets during his lifetime. Massine's work is notable for the massive range of diverse sources that inspired him. Among them, painting and sculpture, architecture, film, literature, commedia dell'arte, and puppetry. Guided by Diaghilev, he entered into close collaborations with leading artists and composers of the modern period, including Matisse, Chagall, Miro, Dali, Stravinsky, Prokofiev, and Hindemith, to name but a few. One of his early works for the Ballet Russe, Parade, with a score by composer Eric Satie, was a landmark not only for the company, but also for the set and costume designer, Pablo Picasso. While drawing dancers at work in the studio, fascinated by their movements and by the groups devised by Massine, Picasso met and married his first wife, Olga Kolova. While the marriage did not last, he never lost interest in the art form, and he designed for many more ballets during his lifetime. By 1921, Messine became the second male star to be fired by Diaghilev after marrying a woman, though he would return to the company intermittently for the remainder of its existence. With the season ahead and no choreographer, 
the uncharacteristic decision was made to restage the classical era favorite, The Sleeping Beauty. The choreography was revived via notation by a stager from the Mariinsky, and additional choreography was provided by Bronislava Nijinska, Václav Nijinsky's younger sister, bringing another critical choreographer into the fold. In back-to-back seasons, she created Les Nos, a somber portrait of Russian peasant life where individuality is suppressed for the greater good, and the polar opposite, Les Biches, a jazz age romp set at a party in the south of France. That was followed by the equally fashionable Le Train Bleu, featuring the acrobatic skill of Anton Dolan, who would later play a significant role in the development of British ballet, and smart bathing suit costumes designed by Coco Chanel. In 1925, another choreographer joined the ranks. George Balanchine would create a number of works for Diaghilev between 1925 and 1928. The most important of these was Apollo, a landmark ballet for a number of reasons. It marked the first time that Balanchine collaborated with Stravinsky, a choreographer-composer relationship that would stretch for over 50 years until Stravinsky's death in 1971. Apollo is considered the first neoclassical ballet, using traditional vocabulary in a new, austere way that Balanchine would later refine for the rest of his lifetime. After years of financial distress and artistic gambles, a prematurely aging and unwell Diaghilev said goodbye to his company at the end of the 1929 season. And disobeying doctor's orders, he traveled to his beloved Venice, Italy, where he died in a hotel room at the age of 57. With no infrastructure or succession plan in place, the Ballet Russe disbanded. Arnold Haskell is quoted as saying that Diaghilev's collaborators read like an index to the cultural history of the first three decades of the 20th century. So while the company existed for a mere 20 years, Diaghilev and his collaborators' influence continues today. A single example of this exists in the next step of the story of George Balanchine. After Diaghilev's death and a series of misfortunes left him jobless, Balanchine relocated to the United States, where he founded a ballet school in 1934. That ballet school would become the foundation of the New York City Ballet, the biggest ballet company in the United States. But that's a story for another day. I hope that you've enjoyed the 10th installation of the Couch to Ballet podcast. Until next week, this is Sarah Duclos signing off.